Good afternoon. I'm Dave Stein, and the topic for today's Rosicrucian Salon or Open Forum is exploring your hidden assumptions. We're going to be examining the things that we take for granted about our everyday lives, ranging from our identity and cultural norms to the nature of the physical universe. Although the first part of the presentation will be physics-heavy, I will later launch into various psychological and cultural aspects of hidden assumptions. Okay, let's go. What do we take for granted in our everyday lives? What have we bought into? In this part of the world, many of us have bought into an everyday routine, one example being the alarm clock, caffeine, commute, traffic jam culture. With that, we bought into the so-called rush hour, which sadly is neither a rush nor only an hour. Many people have bought into consumerism, getting ahead, keeping up with the Joneses, contemporary business culture, and so on. I recall a joke that defines prosperity as buying things that we don't want with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. At a more basic level, most people have bought into a sense of identity, who we think we are, and perhaps who others think we are. Levels deeper, many have bought into their everyday experience of the physical universe, including the nature of space and time. Let us begin by looking at physical reality. As our teachings remind us, our five senses do not tell us everything. There exist acoustical, electromagnetic, and other vibrations that are outside the response ranges of our five senses. Moreover, there exist other types of vibrations and energies to which our five senses do not respond. For those of you who saw the movie Matrix, Perhaps one character was at least partially right when you told another one that reality is electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Our science is based on our notions of space and time, but space and time behave differently at different scales. The subquantum scale on one hand and the cosmological scale on the other. If we were the size of ants or dust mites, we might have developed a different physics. At scales approaching the Planck length, which is approximately 10 to the minus 35 meters, space and time, or more correctly, space-time, might be regarded as a quantum foam that bubbles or percolates in a way that distorts the sense of up, down, left, right, front, back, and before, after. It has also been postulated that the Planck length is the lower limit at which distance or space can be accessed or even said to exist. Perhaps space-time is indeed granular rather than continuous. To insert a bit of personal speculation, this granularity may have implications for sacred geometry, but that is yet to be demonstrated. Whereas quantum theory provides insight on the realm of the very small, 
relativity theory, and cosmology, tell us about other realms beyond our everyday experience. Very high speeds, very large masses, and cosmological scale distances. It was through relativity theory that we learned that space and time are really parts of a higher reality, space-time, and space-time itself may be nothing more than the next layer of a much larger proverbial onion. Furthermore, space and time as we experience them can even transform into each other. For example, suppose two people are in different inertial frames of reference whose relative velocity approaches the speed of light. Part of what one calls space will be experienced as time by the other and conversely. Likewise, if you were in the presence of a sufficiently strong gravitational field, such as that associated with a black hole, and assuming that you could withstand the gravitational gradient, you would find that space and time are partially interchanged. This does not mean that you would use rulers to measure how old you are and clocks to measure how tall you are. Rather, it means that space, as you know it, would become somewhat time-like and conversely. Thus, space and time, as we seem to know them, are not absolutes. Moreover, we experience time subjectively. Subjective time, unlike clock time, is experienced nonlinearly, as when we say time flies or time is dragging. Time in dreams is not the same as clock time. An event that seems like several hours or even a day or more in dream time may transpire in only seconds of clock time. We also know that a blind person or even an intoxicated person will often perceive space and time differently than most of us do. In fact, some cultures appear to experience time differently than others do. For example, some native and aboriginal languages do not conjugate verbs by time. Past, present, and future coalesce into the eternal now. There are even languages that conjugate verbs not by time, but by the reliability of the information source, as that is what is important to the people who speak those languages. In the case of the past, there is even verb conjugation by time and by influence on subsequent events. Recent advances in quantum mechanics have had another profound consequence. The famous Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment, or EPR experiment, has demonstrated the phenomenon of quantum non-locality and also of quantum entanglement. Actually, this EPR experiment was first introduced as a thought experiment or Gedanken experiment in 1935, but the physical experiment was actually performed much later, in 1982, by Elaine Aspect. This experiment involved the most interesting quantum mechanical phenomenon known as spin, which is not actually physical spin in the sense of a rotating material object. The crux of the experiment was the decay process in which a particulate entity emitted two photons or other particles 
in opposite directions and with opposite quantum mechanical spins, such as spin isn't conserved. That is, the total spin of the system, that is, of all the involved particles, is the same before and after the particle emission. I add here that in quantum mechanics, it is well known that spin can be measured relative to only one spatial axis at a time. A subsequent measurement relative to a different spatial axis destroys the information from the first measurement, and this has profound implications for logic as we know it. After the photons separate, their spins must be opposite relative to any arbitrarily oriented spatial axis. Thus, if one is measured as having spin up, the spin of the other one must be down whether measured or not. Likewise, if one photon is measured as having spin left, the other must have spin right. However, the photons are traveling apart so fast that when one is measured, there is no way for it to send a signal to the other one to instruct it to manifest the opposite spin, as this would require a superluminal signal that is forbidden by special relativity. Even more interesting is the fact that the choice of measurement axis itself can be made after the particles separate. So there is no way for one particle to tell its twin the axis by which it must manifest opposite spin. Thus, the particles are connected in some other way. In physics parlance, they are said to be quantum entangled. This has profound consequences. First, the observer, the observed, and the process of observing are no longer separable. And indeed, at the quantum level, the process of observing or measuring actually influences the outcome. Perhaps it is also this entanglement that is involved in parapsychological phenomena that transcend everyday space-time, phenomena including clairvoyance, clairaudience, distant healing, and remote viewing, even energy healing. Furthermore, the experiment argues for the concept of non-locality in which seemingly separate regions of space-time are connected, such that a system's subtle properties depend on the whole and cannot be analyzed in terms of components. Such non-locality supports the holistic approach to medicine and wellness that is practiced in much of Asia, as opposed to the more reductionist approach that's common in the West. Even a well-known passage from a religious scripture, as ye do unto the least of my brethren, so ye do unto me, may actually be a quantum mechanics statement. In any event, this interconnectedness is at variance with our everyday experience of separateness. It has been suggested that at some level, people are also interconnected and seem to know about one another. Thus, Scientific findings and theories are starting to support the ancient wisdom that everything is part of an unbroken wholeness. The late prominent physicist David Bohm has advocated the development of a new theory based on this unbroken wholeness. The phenomenon of pre-adaptive evolution, proposed by other prominent scientists, seems to corroborate this unbroken wholeness, or at least a nonlinear aspect of time. 
This is a phenomenon by which plants and animals sometimes adapt in anticipation of, rather than in response to, environmental or climatic changes. Quantum mechanics is replete with other phenomena and consequences that challenge our everyday notion of the physical universe. For example, in quantum logic, the law of the excluded metal no longer applies, and conditions or probabilities that we regard as mutually exclusive can coexist in a superposed state until an observation, that is, a state vector reduction, occurs. Perhaps you are familiar with the example of Schrodinger's cat, which is in a superposed state of alive plus dead until observed. The observation or experiment selects one possible outcome and excludes the other. This is analogous to the act of choosing a radio or television station on your dial, an act that locks out all of the other stations at that particular time. But until the choice or the observation is made, all possibilities coexist. An equally convincing example can be found in baseball, whereas the umpire at first base might say, he's safe till I call it, and the second base umpire may respond, no, he's out till I call it. Quantum mechanics is analogous to the home plate umpire who might proclaim, he ain't nothing till I call it. Now imagine a quantum mechanical criminal wanted poster that is wanted alive and dead. In our everyday lives, this is counterintuitive, but in quantum mechanics, it makes perfect sense. There are other counterintuitive concepts, one being counterfactuality. The effect on the observable outcome of an event of the mere existence or potentiality of an alternative that did not actually occur. For example, the journey of a particle can be impacted by the presence of a path that did not actually traverse. The mere fact that the path was available impacts the outcome. To an extent, the famous double-slit experiment illustrates this. If a beam of photons, electrons, or other similar particles impinges on an appropriately placed pair of parallel slits behind which is a screen, an interference pattern is observed on the screen. So far, so good. If one thinks in terms of waves emanating from the two slits, such that the waves interfere constructively at some points on the screen and destructively at other points. Now, imagine that the beam intensity is turned down to the point that at any given moment, only one photon, electron, or whatever, is in transit from the source through the slits to the screen. The interference pattern is still observed over time, for example, if a photographic plate is used to record the particles. Assuming that each particle transits through only one slit, the fact that the path through another slit was available influences the pattern observed on the screen. However, if an attempt is made to measure or identify which slit each particle traverses, then the interference pattern disappears. Now imagine applying counterfactuality to the highway as you travel from point A to point B, for example, when you go home from the lodge this evening. Counterfactuality would mean that the existence of one or more routes not taken would impact your experience of the route that you do take 
even if you were the only car on the road at the time, such a traffic volume is not a factor. Perhaps the most profound consequence of modern science is that it is proving its own limitations. In 1931, the mathematician Kurt Gödel proved that no axiomatic mathematical system can prove its own consistency through deductive reasoning. This limits what can be known or expressed in terms of a finite set of axioms. Finite mathematical system also leads to paradoxes, a popular one being that of the legendary barber of Seville, who shaves himself if and only if he does not shave himself. The consistency of a finite mathematical system would be provable only at a level external to itself, and this in turn argues against the completeness of the system. Since our mathematics, which underpins our science, cannot be proven exactly, at some level it is based on faith in, or consensus on, the axioms, and at that level it cannot explain, it can only describe and predict. In this regard, it is based on foundations that are beyond deductive reasoning, and it differs from religion only in the level of consensus involved. Meanwhile, Relativity, perhaps by definition, argues against an absolute reality, at least at the level of space and time as physically experienced. For example, observers in different inertial frames will experience different temporal orders of events. As if not to be outdone, quantum theory has given us the uncertainty principle, which puts limits on what we can know. For example, simultaneous knowledge of a particle's position and conjugate momentum, or of its spin vector relative to two different spatial axes. Some physicists even contend that uncertainty and inconsistency are basic to nature, and that beyond a certain point, nature is unknowable in the objective scientific sense. At the quantum level, another sort of relativity is demonstrated. The fact that merely choosing a physics experiment helps to determine its outcome. For example, if one decides to look at an electron as a particle, then it behaves as a particle. Conversely, if one decides to look at an electron as a wave, then it behaves as a wave. Thus, how you choose to observe the electron determines what you observe or experience. Might this also apply to how you choose to think about a particular person? So, scientific theories are not totally objective. As psychologist and author Arnold Mendel put it, scientific theories are based on consensus reality terms and concepts, that is, on collective agreement that constitutes scientific authority. Scientific theories can be verified by consensus reality experiments, are consistent with other known laws of physics, that is, laws that are known in the consensus reality sense, and marginalize phenomena that we are not yet ready to observe. As he notes, views of nature change with changes in consensus reality. At one time, as Mendel reminds us, ghosts were more accepted than were particles, and today's virtual particles are acceptable ghosts. As if to echo the anthropic principle, one might suggest that the physical universe can never be known to us in a scientific sense 
independently of human measurements and choices of what to measure. Thus, science can explain phenomena only up to a point beyond which it can only describe and predict. But even the predictive capability of science may be limited if the multiverse hypothesis is true. The multiverse hypothesis allows for the possibility of other island universes, perhaps resulting from other Big Bangs in a higher dimensional space-time continuum that is physically inaccessible to human and other life as we know it. Such universes might have different numbers of dimensions, different physical constants, and different particles or other building blocks with their own charges, masses, and spins. If their equivalent of light could even get to us, there would then be the question as to whether we could detect it. The existence of other universes orthogonal to our own world would tend to relax the need to invoke the anthropic principle to explain why nature is as it is. That is the principle that the universe is the way that it is because otherwise we humans would not be here to observe it. At the same time, the existence of these other universes would have profound implications for our attempts to understand nature via conventional scientific means and even for the predictive capability of science itself. But even if the possibility of orthogonal multiverses is disregarded, there may well be limits as to what we can know about the four-dimensional physical universe that we experience. It has been hypothesized that there are regions of our physical universe that are so distant that their light has not yet had time to get here, and then there is the Hubble limit. Furthermore, even the Big Bang itself may be forever hidden from us by virtue of an event horizon, and perhaps it even happened in an imaginary space-time, as physicist Stephen Hawking has proposed. Mendel has suggested that perhaps the Big Bang can be experienced only subjectively, or in his parlance, non-consensus reality, and that this is what has given rise to various creation accounts and myths, many of which involve a vast void or limitless empty space. Hawking's view can be understood as the universe beginning with dreams, with imaginary time, and with it reflecting upon itself to create reality, an account with parallels in Vedic literature, for example. In any event, the use of our four-dimensional space-time manifold to understand nature may be a consequence more of how we perceive space and time than of nature itself. Yet we have multiverses in our human-made world, too, in the form of different cultures, and over-identification with one's culture also tends to limit one's thinking and sense of identity. The fallacy of thinking that all other people are or should be like oneself, and the failure to think beyond one's cultural event horizon, are largely responsible for cultural clashes today as well as throughout human history. Let us examine contemporary cultures and the ways that they shape our thinking and our sense of identity. The United States, for example, is a land in which liberty, opportunity, and to an extent the individual are highly valued, with such value so enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Another core value is individual self-reliance. In comparison with other cultures in the world, the U.S. is not a group-oriented culture, although the herd instinct manifests nonetheless. Then, too, 
we value taking a stand or a possession. This core value helps cultivate a binary or us-them reductionist mindset that characterizes our politics as well as much Western religion in the United States and elsewhere. Beyond religion and politics, this binary mindset shapes how we think and how we experience the world. It is also here that the traditional work ethic that was so pivotal in building the United States has morphed into the workaholic ethic. With that, perhaps one of the most common complaints in this part of the world is not enough hours in the day. On the average, we tend to give primacy to work over family time, proper nutrition, proper exercise, and proper rest. As though downtime were a cardinal sin, we now have the working lunch, the eat at your desk, the eat while you drive, and the uncompensated overtime syndromes. Indeed, in more than one high-tempo workplace, I've even heard it said that being sick is not an option, even though the work culture is a major contributor to illness in the first place. Then when we are not working, many of us value diversion, stimulation, and entertainment of various types over contemplation and introspection. Furthermore, we even tend to over-identify with our jobs and our professions and thereby limit ourselves. Often when people meet for the first time and they ask each other, what do you do? Then, as though occupational identification is not limiting enough, we tend to limit our identities further with political and religious labels. Then there is the instant gratification mindset that manifests in the quarterly earnings statement modus operandi, and also in lack of patience with traffic jams and long lines. One can also argue that the U.S. is a youth-oriented culture and a visual culture. Like other cultures of the past and present, there is a tendency to make assumptions of which one is not aware. In the case of the United States, an example might be presuming that if one is a man, he likes football. In my own personal case, nothing could bear less resemblance to the truth. For various reasons, we have even become a throwaway society. During times of less general affluence, and particularly during the Great Depression, it was common to repair furniture, clothing, and other items. Today, by contrast, it is generally cheaper and or less time-consuming to discard or replace an item when it is broken, torn, or otherwise deemed unserviceable. But the mindset does not stop here. Now we have disposable employees and even disposable spouses, as evidenced by divorce rates, in which, according to The Economist magazine, the U.S. led the world in 2005. Contrast this with the values and lifestyles of Western Europe, where family and leisure time are more balanced, as evidenced by longer vacations, shorter work days in some places, and even legal restrictions on store hours that would seem tight by U.S. standards. When I was stationed in Germany, most stores were required to close by 6 p.m. so that people could spend more time with their families, and institutionalized, uncompensated overtime was unheard of. Stores were permitted to open Saturday mornings, but only one Saturday afternoon per month. A project that had involved officers from several NATO countries illustrates the differing cultural values quite well. When 5 p.m. came one day, the U.S. officers proposed 
Let's stay another half hour and finish this. However, the officers of our European allies would not hear of it. In parts of Europe, introspection is valued more so than it is in the U.S., although any causal relationship between the value placed on introspection and the pace of life is a topic for another day. Perhaps not surprisingly, the average longevity figures for several European countries are higher than they are in the U.S. According to The Economist magazine, the U.S. ranked 37th in longevity among the nations of the world in the year 2005. For their part, Asian countries value the work ethic, but in other ways they are markedly different from the U.S. Asian cultures have historically valued the group over the individual, and they are characterized by patience and a longer time horizon than the quarterly earnings statement, a time horizon that figured profoundly in the outcome of the conflict known in the U.S. as the Vietnam War. Age-oriented more than youth-oriented, at least in the traditional sense, some Asian cultures have historically been more auditory and less visual, as evidenced in their languages, in which subtle differences in inflections can radically alter the meanings of words. For this reason, some hearing disorders considered relatively minor in the U.S. would be regarded as major in China, for example. More interestingly, Asian cultures have a mindset that is less reductionistic and more holistic on matters ranging from medicine to philosophy to warfare. The yin and yang polarities notwithstanding, they are generally less of a binary either-or culture than are we. Whereas a number of contemporary cultures regard nature as something to be dominated, various native and aboriginal peoples have valued coexistence with nature and have traditionally experienced time as an eternal now, not subdivided into past, present, and future. The Middle East has its own lessons to teach. Traditionally, learning itself was valued as evidenced by the advances in astronomy, mathematics, and medicine that Arabia and Persia gave to the world when Europe was in the Dark Ages. Even today, traditional Middle Eastern societies are less diversion-oriented than as much of the West. And to borrow sports parlance, one would not expect their MVPs, that is, their most valuable players, to be athletes and movie stars. One might look at other descriptors of various cultures, both present and past. What choices did their people make regarding values, lifestyles, and identities? Who did they choose to be, and what aspects of themselves did they choose to marginalize? For example, who are their celebrities or MVPs? That is, who is most valued and esteemed? Or are there any celebrities at all? What professions are most valued? What personality types? How does a given culture view its challenged people, its gifted people, and its nonconformists? Is diversity appreciated? Does cooperation or competition rule the day? Is it primarily a left-brain culture or a right-brain culture? Patriarchal or matriarchal? What is the outlook on life? For example, self-determination or fatalism? Do people live lives of fulfillment and positive adventure, 
or do they live lives of maintenance? Are there opportunities to live and work according to one's full potential? What do they consider to be prosperity? Is their economy growth-based or steady-state, and how does it interact with nature? What do people do for entertainment and leisure? What family structures do they have? Extended, nuclear, or other? How do leaders emerge? Is learning valued as an end unto itself, or is it valued more in a utilitarian sense? How complex is the society, and does complexity or simplicity contribute to fulfillment or to stress? What major challenges do the culture and its people face? Thus, what assumptions do we make about other peoples when we look at them through the lens of our own mindsets and identities? Who have we chosen to be, and what possibilities have we marginalized with our choices? What lessons do other cultures have to teach us about who we are and who we can be? Conversely, which of these lessons might be lost as the world becomes more culturally homogeneous? Which nations are exporting their cultures, and which nations are importing the cultures of other nations and peoples? If lessons are lost, what are the implications to the overall human experience? Perhaps we can also ask what role the order can play in preserving wisdom from other cultures, present and past. As a point of comparison, and for that purpose only, the educational value of doing this might far eclipse that of the diversity that many U.S. universities strive to achieve in their admissions policies. But it's not only culture that shapes one's sense of identity, particularly since roles such as leader and follower, haves and have-nots, oppressor and oppressed, have existed in numerous cultures throughout history. In a single incarnation, one might over-identify with such a role in a binary, us-them sense, or in a more complex society such as our own, with one's occupation, and thereby marginalize those experiences and those aspects of himself or herself that are at variance with that identity, even though these roles and the people filling them are all quantum entangled. But the over-identification does not stop here. Some people over-identify with a position in a scientific debate, or with a political party or philosophy, or with a religion or ethnic group, thereby closing themselves off from other truths. It is as though people define themselves in terms of counterpoint. That is, you know who you are by comparing yourself to those people who are dissimilar. Extreme over-identification with one's nation or ethnic group in an us-them sense underlies much strife and conflict today as it has for centuries. It is worth noting here that psychology has its own version of non-locality, as Mendel points out. That is, one's identity generally influences others and in turn is influenced by them. Marginalization of self-aspects at variance with one's sense of identity is akin to a tendency in science to marginalize or disregard the outlier data points. Within the context of several incarnations, 
one might shift from one role to another, one does not necessarily have conscious awareness of his or her prior roles. However, certain events in one's life, such as a change in occupation, can help one realize that he or she is more than an executive, a truck driver, a teacher, or a health care provider. Furthermore, subjective experiences such as dreams, hunches, emotions, trances, fantasies, and out-of-body experiences can provide access to other parts of oneself that are beyond one's self-imposed identity. As these subjective experiences occur outside of linear space-time as we know it, and usually beyond the experience realms or event horizons of others. That is, one person cannot proclaim another person's dream or hunch to be true or false. An exception is the synchronicity, for example, if someone calls you at the moment when you are thinking about him or her. In this case, the experience is seemingly shared by the two people, but even then, there is no objective consensus on temporal order, that is, who signaled whom first. Assuming that this question even makes sense and that the meaning of the term signal is understood. In any event, attempts to express or even think about these subjective experiences in objective terms and in the context of linear space-time will distort their meanings, a phenomenon that you yourself may have experienced while attempting to express a dream verbally. This is somewhat analogous to the destruction of the interference pattern in the double slit experiment when one attempts to identify the slit that each particle traversed. As we have seen, there are self-limiting assumptions that people make, assumptions that have roots in everyday experiences of identities, of societies or cultures, and even of space-time and the physical world. However, those aspects of our identities, cultures, or the physical world that we marginalize will quite often have observable and sometimes profound consequences. At least the human-made world offers counterpoints to these assumptions in the forms of diverse cultures and personalities if one will only observe and study them. At the level of physical reality, transcending our assumptions is more challenging. Yet, to accept our notion of space-time as absolute is sheer folly, especially considering that science itself points to a reality that is more basic than space-time. The nature of that reality, be it symmetry relationships arising from self-reflection, be it a network of interactions among sentient beings, or be it consciousness itself, is yet to be understood in the conventional sense of understanding. Indeed, contemporary science has provided a new framework for understanding the universe, as have the creation myths and the religions that preceded it. Yet even contemporary science, like religious dogma before it, has tended to marginalize and perhaps even repress another path to knowledge, personal experience. It is only recently that scientific advances themselves have demonstrated the limitations of scientific objectivity. For example, at the quantum level, 
the experimenter and the choice of experiment determine the outcome. So much so that perhaps the notion of detached observer no longer applies. This may suddenly have profound implications for the scientific method as we know it, as it may need to evolve so as to incorporate personal experience, especially in studies of consciousness. As various physicists, including David Bohm, have proposed, the next level of understanding may well be based on non-locality and unbroken wholeness at the outset. The unbroken wholeness is already being demonstrated in various energy-based therapies, in which the outcome depends not entirely on the patient, nor entirely on the therapist or practitioner, but on the interaction between them. But one need not wait for these advances in science. You are already more than you know, at least more than you know, at the level of everyday conscious awareness. Some parts of ourselves, and indeed some truths, lie beyond our everyday physical world experience. In some cases, they are accessible only through personal experience, including non-consensus reality experience, such as dreams, intuition, meditation, and so on. In other cases, we can gain new insights by remaining ever vigilant and questioning those things that we take for granted. But is there any reason not to ask these questions? After all, we are walking question marks.